Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. Today, my guest takes us inside the surprising ongoing efforts to sort out the mess left behind in Afghanistan after the botched withdrawal. In today's increasingly managed information landscape, independent journalism has never been more important. Support factual reporting without the censorship by visiting CherylAckeson.com and click the Store tab. Proceeds from sales go to causes related to independent reporting, including the new ION Awards I'm sponsoring to encourage accurate, off-narrative original reporting. Also, check out my bestsellers on this topic, Stonewall, Slanted, and The Smear. And thanks for being part of the solution. You may not have heard much lately about what's going on in Afghanistan. The whole thing seems to have largely disappeared from the news. It doesn't have to be that way. There are dozens and dozens of stories that we can give attention to on a given day. But as you know, the media tends to focus on the same three, four, or five stories over and over. So much news time, but so much is left uncovered. Well, those who know say there's still a lot going on that's very important to us in Afghanistan including Americans and friendly Afghans still left behind and very active ongoing efforts to help. Today, you'll hear from Mike Edwards, who heads up a group called Project Exodus Relief. And I'm pretty sure you're going to learn a lot like I did. We're just a group of people that came together and just wanted to help rescue some of our friends, some of our Afghan soft guys that we worked with, which, you know, Special Operations Forces guys that we worked with overseas. And then, you know, as this thing went on longer and longer and longer, uh, we were sharing a lot of intelligence back and forth and decided to, to bring this whole thing together in more of a cohesive group instead of just a text chain. Um, and then after that, we reached across to different elements that we had contact with and tried to bring it all together to, to, to build like a synergy to, uh, to get this whole thing moving and combine our efforts. And that's where we're at now. And it's, it's grown and grown and grown and uh, become pretty effective uh, with the other little roadblocks we're running into. We're, we're, we're finally getting through a lot of the hurdles that were stopping us. Okay. Well, before we dig into that, can you give me a little bit of your own background? I know you served in the military for many years, and I think I read that you started getting interested in a whole career in the military about the time 9-11 happened. You could tell me about that. Yes, ma'am. So I joined the Army originally in the National Guard back in 1996. And then I went to college at Marion Military Institute to, to be an officer. My dad was an officer in the army. So he kind of wanted me to follow in his, his footsteps. So I did that, went to school there. I enjoyed the military aspect of it, um, but I didn't really like uh, certain other aspects of becoming an officer. And I, I was a little young at the time and didn't really want to focus too much on school. So I ended up withdrawing and uh, going enlisted. Um, as an enlisted guy, I went in the regular army for a while, uh, didn't really like it. I didn't. It's not what I thought it was going to be. Uh, we just did a lot of details and cut some grass and wore a lot of equipment, but didn't do anything like shooting guns or anything. So uh, I decided, you know, 9-11 happened. Actually, I was in Korea and I decided to um, 
to re-enlist to go into a special operations unit. I'd always kind of wanted to do that, but it just hadn't happened at that point in time. Uh, so then I re-enlisted to go to the Ranger Regiment. Wait, stop, stop there for a second, because it's okay. my understanding that that's really hard and elite. You don't just say, hey, a lot of people would like to be in special forces, but you must have been in good shape and trained for it and gotten selected and so on. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I, I kind of knew what I was getting into. So I trained myself for it. Uh, during training, the harder I was on myself, the easier it would be on me when others were hard on me, um, if that makes sense. So I just pushed myself as hard as I possibly could, uh, made it in there into the entry level of the Ranger Regiment. And typically what guys do there, they're just assaulters, you know, chasing, you know, kicking in doors, jumping on airfields, uh, you know, sh shooting bad guys uh, and things like that, hunting the enemies of our, our of our nation. So I did that for a while. And then after Several years and several deployments, I kind of got tired of that and I got exposed to some more, even more elite units within the Ranger Regiment and within, you know, DOD itself. And I decided that I wanted to go to selection for one of those. So um, I ended up going to selection for the Regimental Reconnaissance Company. Um, and that's a really small unit that not a lot of people know about that's uh, part of the 75th Ranger Regiment, but they do a lot of low vis like clandestine reconnaissance type stuff and work directly with a lot of the Afghans, especially the Afghan soft guys that we trained to do that same kind of stuff. So I was more interested in that. And so I went down that route and did that for several years and then, then continued on. And I can elaborate more if you want me to keep going. Well, I will get to some specific questions, but I'm still interested in background because a lot of folks I've met over the years who have to do with special operations forces you guys seem to know so much logistically about what's going on in an area like Afghanistan, the secret stuff and the non-secret stuff. I don't understand how one person gets all that knowledge and information, keeps a grasp on it. I, I suppose that's what helped you go into this project we're talking about today. But how does that work? Just maybe this is a little bit of a sidebar, but talk about how an individual involved in these forces gets intelligence and becomes so keyed in on so many aspects of what's going on in a country. Yeah. So we, we are, you know, forced really by nature of, of the job a lot of times to be reliant on ourselves. So we have to solve complex tasks and that's what they hire us to do. They hire people that have an exceptional um, IQ, an exceptional drive, you know, fitness level and all that kind of stuff. All that stuff comes together. And then all the training that we do, uh, builds networks and then teaches us all the different mechanisms required to do any type of option. And then as you get higher up in the military and you've done more and more operations, you really understand how things work, the logistics of getting planes in, what it takes to land them on the ground, whether it be a, a runway or a, or a dirt landing strip. Um, you're trained on how to do all those little pieces as well. So that's the thing. And, and the job that I was in, uh, especially the reconnaissance company, we were trained to do almost everything, at least a little bit. So being trained to do almost everything, you learn really how everything works because you're involved in every little piece, just a little bit, even if it's not, you're not a master at it. So I think that helps out a lot. And most of the uh, more elite special operations units are like that. Um, you just have to be, and all the training that you do, it just compiles on top of that. And then on top of that, uh, you're tied in with other groups and other units and you're building networks um, and then especially when you're doing like the clandestine reconnaissance stuff and the, uh, you know, that, that kind of stuff, you're essentially 
having networks of local Afghans that you work with and you're talking to all the time and you're getting information from collecting information and intelligence from them. And then, you know, that stuff, it's easy to bring it back together. Even if you haven't done it in a while, you just hop right back into it. It's like second nature. Well, that was my next question. So you're now out of the military. Would you call yourself retired from the military? Um, where do you get your information? It sounds like you said you it wasn't hard to put back together a group, but tell me how you did that and when you decided to be part of that. So, yes, ma'am, I am retired. I retired in 2019. I was doing some contract work on my own for a while. So I stayed and I was training special operations units still, uh, you know, the most elite of the elite of the special operations units. So I still had a lot of connections there and ties to those units. Then when this stuff in Afghanistan happened, um, I was talking to some uh, Afghans that I was trying to help out. And some people reached out to me to ask me if I could help them with some people that they were talking to. So I brought these people onto my list. And then I started reaching out to friends of mine who I knew were still doing government contracts, probably had ties to what was going on over there still directly, even though I didn't. And I found out that they were working a lot of the same stuff I was. So we started just sharing intelligence and we started getting back into the whole mix of what's going on over there. Now, a lot of things have changed since the last time I was over there, even though it wasn't that long ago. So we just started building our networks and then we started reaching out to other people and it's all about communicating. And one of the biggest things is when you're talking to, when you're talking about all this kind of secret kind of essentially covert stuff is what we're doing over there right now. It's all about like bona fides. Um, you talk to other groups and they want to know that you're credible and that you can be trusted. So it's kind of like who knows who, for example, a group leader I may reach out to, they may know guys that I worked with and I know guys that they work with. And then we reach back to those guys and confirm, Hey, this guy's a good guy. He's trustworthy and loyal. And then we're good to go. And we're cruising from there. And it just keeps going. That's basically the way it works. If you can give me just a paragraph or a few sentences, what is it you would say that you think most people don't know about what's happening in Afghanistan today? Well, I think I think most people don't know that there are a lot of the most loyal Afghans that there ever were that are still stuck in that country. There is no path to citizenship in the United States for these guys. So if someone worked directly for the U.S. government, there's a path. They can get an SIV or whatever. But these Afghan soft soldiers, they work for the Ministry of Defense in Afghanistan. So they don't have a direct pathway. But these guys are still stuck there. And it's critical that we get them out. These guys are our eyes and ears on the ground. They give us intelligence. They're still working for us for free just to save their own lives and to save their countrymen. So it's very critical that we get them out. And that's what our biggest focus is. And that's going to take a while because a lot of them don't have passports due to the fact that they were loyal to their country. They never planned to leave. And then when everything happened so quick, they tried to get them, but it, it took so long that these guys are stuck over there undocumented, essentially. So how many people are we talking about? And are there Americans still in the group that you're dealing with? Or are these exclusively or almost exclusively Afghan, Afghans who are left that you're talking about? There's still a good number of Americans still over there. And uh, some of them may not want, well, they all want to leave. But some of them meet the criteria to leave under the State Department. For example, we have one lady who's an American citizen from California, and she has her nephews that she's you know, in custody of. They're, they're grown, a grown man and a grown woman with a child, but they're not her direct family members. So the U.S. government won't fly them out, and she refuses to leave without them. So in her circumstance, she's kind of stuck there still on her own because she, she's waiting until they'll fly everyone else out. 
But there are still others over there that want to leave and have the documentation to leave, but haven't been reached out to or communicated with. And groups like us are talking to them every single day, keeping them up to date, trying to get them manifested on flights and communicating with the State Department through one of these other proxy groups. And uh, still nothing's happening. Do you have any estimate of about how many Americans are in that category of wanting to leave or in that limbo, not in a position to leave, but would like to when they can? Just with Project Citizen Relief, I think I submitted up 18 names the other day, and, and that's pure American citizens. And there's a lot more LPRs or green card holders as well. And that's just our group. Uh, I know there's another group out there that had about 45 of them, uh, another group that had about five or six. Uh, so there's a decent many over there, and, and I may not be tracking all of them. So are there operations by your group and others going on every day? Is it safe to say somehow people are being gathered and brought out even as we speak? Or does this just happen sporadically? Give me some idea of that. Yeah, so day-to-day operations consist of um, making sure people are fed, for one, making sure they're staying warm because it's getting cold and Afghanistan has uh, really brutal winters. Um, And then also transferring money to safe houses because we're paying for safe houses to keep these people safe. Some of them are being hunted down by the Taliban directly. Most of our soft guys uh, the ones we're trying to rescue are the tier, you know, the top tier cream of the crop, uh, essentially like the the SEAL Team Six, the Delta Force kind of guys of Afghanistan. So highly vetted guys, and their names are on a list. So we're trying to keep them out of the grips of the Taliban. To do that, we're funding safe houses. So we have to get money over there, figure out how to get money over there. Uh, everything that we're doing is is 100% legal. So we're trying to figure out the legal ways to do it without getting ourselves in trouble, um, and and then getting the money to them so that they can pay. For safe houses. These guys are going out and uh, procuring these houses for us. They're making sure that they're secure and safe. Then we put people in there. They're helping us shuttle people in there. We're providing clothing, food, blankets, all that kind of stuff. Actually, um, and this is the biggest part of the operations. Then I'll talk about the flights because those are a little more few and far between. Um, But we have people get shot by the Taliban, but they survive, right? And then they drive back home and then we get a call or a text message. Hey, I've been shot and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So then we talk them through how to stop the bleeding, how to treat the wound, how to assess the wound to see how bad it is, where they need to go to surgery. Because a lot they, of them, can't, they can't just go to a hospital or they might get caught. Yes, ma'am. Exactly. A lot of them, they can't go to the hospital, but we have doctors that we have uh, working with us that are in Afghanistan also. And we also have doctors and uh, special operations medics on our staff here that we have access to. So we can reach out to them and say, hey, we got this guy who's got this issue. Can you advise him? They can call him on the phone and talk to him. And then we actually have doctors that can go to their house and treat them, uh, depending on what it is and what they need. And then if it's worse, we try to evac them out as best as possible. Um, We've also delivered babies via C-section. We had naturally born babies. One of my personal guys actually had a brand new baby born just yesterday, actually. More with Mike Edwards after a short break. Tasks, deadlines, and projects. What if your teams had a tool that brought everything together? Trello is the project management tool that powers collaboration for over 2 million teams across the globe, including 80% of Fortune 500s. 
Trello brings teams together by tracking daily to-dos and provides a high-level view across projects and teams. From product development and design to support and production, Trello helps all teams move their work forward together. Thousands of IT admins around the world trust Trello to keep their work safe. With Trello, your teams will have access to hundreds of top-tier integrations they can rely on. A big reason why Trello is top-rated for employee satisfaction. It's where companies do their best work. Trello for enterprise. Learn more by visiting trello.com slash for enterprise. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com slash for enterprise. You had written or someone had written on your website. I don't know when it was written exactly that the Taliban are murdering hundreds of people every day. Is that still the case? And how are you gathering that information? It's probably somewhere around there. I'm not sure exactly what the numbers are. But we do, we have lost, I think the most we lost about 45 of our Afghan soft guys in one week. So that's a pretty big number considering we have a pretty small group anyway. We've got about 400 of these guys on our, on our roster still. But they're murdering them pretty, pretty vigorously. But the thing is, though, it's not just the Taliban. There's factions of the Haqqani network over there in control of factions of the Pakistani ISI that are over there just just kill squads, just going out after people and killing them. And so it's not just the Taliban. The Taliban are kind of fractured, and I think they're more into it for the business, trying to make money to, to support their what they want to have as a government. Um, but there's, I think, a lot of the killings going on by ISIS-K and ISI kill squads and stuff like that. Taliban's probably doing it a little bit here and there. Um, but it's hard, to, it's hard to say definitively who's doing the killing. But we do know some of those other more radical groups are definitely doing a lot of it. So this is a tall order, but you've probably had to do this to people who've asked you, other Americans. Can you, in very simple terms, without using a lot of jargon, explain what the lay of the land is in Afghanistan, meaning who are the Taliban, who is ISIS-K? You know, we add a letter to that or we call them ISIL. Or It's very confusing to people who aren't that close to and don't follow all the terminology. What's really happening in Afghanistan, if you had to say, say it in very simple terms? So to summarize the whole country, essentially, it's been shut down to uh, vehicle traffic. So they're not getting a lot of imports. They've got, um, you've got the uh, National Resistance Front, which is um, people led by the, the former uh, Masood who died, you know, in the original resistance, his son, these guys led a resistance against the Taliban to try to take back their country. Do we, consider them, do we consider them the good guys if there is such a thing? I know there's blurry lines, but. Yes, ma'am. I, I would consider those guys good guys. Um, and here's the thing. A lot of our Afghans that we're trying to rescue, we are talking to these guys and they're in safe houses. The ones that are free and out there, they're actually fighting on the side of the national resistance force to kick back the Taliban. They're fighting the Taliban and ISIS-K and stuff like that every day. And they were winning some big battles for a while. We were kind of cheering them on, like, hopefully they'll take their own country back and then it'll be okay. Um, but then they were kind of knocked Pakistan uh, with some airstrikes against them. So that little piece is going on. And then you've got the Taliban acting essentially as a TSA at all the airports, uh, letting people in, checking them in, you know, doing the security checks and boarding people. And, in and the these are, just to be clear, the Taliban, correct me where I'm wrong, are the Islamic extremists that are largely to blame for sheltering um, Osama bin Laden after 9-11? Is that right? The Taliban are part of that. Um, they were more of the low-level guys that are more of like a radical um, 
religious extremists. Um, the Haqqani network is more directly tied in with, I'd say, Al-Qaeda and, uh, and the ISI, which is a lot more dangerous. And they're, a lot of them are foreign fighters. Um, a lot of these are British speaking, you know, with American accents, different weird stuff like that, that we're seeing um, not of Afghan descent. They're from other countries that have come in, probably hanging out in Pakistan until this all happened. And then they came right across the border. And what, is their, what would you say is their ultimate goal um, of the resistance, I suppose, to get control back of their country? But what is the ultimate goal of these other groups that are fighting? I'm not exactly sure what the ultimate goal is of, you know, the uh, the ISIS and those guys, obviously, just to inflict death and kill a lot of the people that they've been fighting. I, that's the only thing I can determine from them. They're trying to catch some of these soft guys that we have, catch them laying low at their house and, and then taking them off and, you know, taking them off the top of the list. The Taliban, I think, want to be recognized as some sort of legitimate government and are trying to make money off of this whole thing to support their country. Um, and I'm sure they got some nefarious and really bad stuff. They're probably killing people and beating people, too. Um, but then the uh, the kill squads that are coming over from Pakistan, I'm not sure exactly what their intent is, but they they seem to be looking for these soft guys, too. And they're also looking for some groups of females. The, the last group I heard of that they killed was a bunch of girls. They uh, called them. They were acting as if they were um, uh, like a rescue effort like us, calling people. And these people said, hey, yeah, we need help. And they come to where they are and then they kill them. And again, these are Muslim extremists from Pakistan. These are not yes, ma'am. Just ordinary folk. I had a source, a firsthand source, tell me when you just said they were fooling people on the phone, that in the initial chaos that happened, the State Department, for whatever reason, did not destroy all of their documents in the embassy. The CIA folks managed to do so, but the State Department left behind a lot of material. And I was told that, I don't know if it was Taliban or ISIS, immediately got records showing all the people that had registered with um, the State Department, meaning Americans living in Afghanistan, had given a lot of personal information, as well as some Afghans. They gave information about their social media, their identities, all kinds of things. That information was obtained, I'm told. And initially, the bad guys started calling and contacting, maybe it was more by email, the, the innocent people that we care about and telling them to come to a safe house. And when they would get to the safe house, they were killed. I don't know if you heard anything about that. Oh, yeah, we definitely heard about that. And it was confirmed by multiple sources that we, that we were in touch with as well. And, and with that, not only that, someone... I'm not sure who it was, but within our government actually gave out lists of the people we wanted to take out when, when the military was still there. Lists, including our Afghans, you know, soft guys, all the American citizens and stuff like that. And the Taliban and, and some of these ISIS-K that were probably mixed in with them had access to all that stuff. So now th those lists are out there and they're, that's how they're able to find these people and hunt them down and kill them. So we, we have to be really stealthy with the way we communicate with our guys, we're constantly staying vigilant on it, telling them what to do to you know, provide countermeasures against that. Have you ever heard of anything in history like this where private citizens like you and the people you work with have stepped in to do operations like this in a case where the government isn't doing what some people say the government ought to be doing and when the government has, in the opinion of many Democrats and Republicans, led to this situation? Is there anything to compare it to? Nothing that I can, well, nothing that I really know of firsthand. 
Although I heard that this something similar to this happened in Vietnam with the, uh, the Montagnards and stuff that the, uh, the SF guys were trying to bring out some of their loyal assets there. I don't know if it was on this same scale a little bit before my time, even, or maybe, well, maybe when I was a little baby, but in my recent history, I, I don't know of anything like this. I think this is definitely historic for sure. As someone who served in Afghanistan, what is it like to know that some of the folks that you were fighting and certainly ISIS that we worked so hard to expel from, you know, key areas in the Middle East, that they're back and that the Taliban is in fact in charge. You know, I, I no one wants to say that all of our efforts there were for nothing. A lot of our efforts had to do with helping civilians and building schools and, you know, just doing all kinds of non-military stuff. But what are your reflections on the notion that we're gone and that's the status now? Well, we did do a lot of good stuff while we were over there. And in my personal opinion is that it was time to get out of there anyway, but we could have done it in a different fashion. Um, and, and I think that's the biggest issue right there. These soft guys that we're, we're trying to rescue, they're, they're willing to fight for their country. They want to. They just don't have the option right now. They don't have weapons. We disarmed the country while we were there for the last 20 years. We disarmed the entire country with the exception of the Taliban. You know, we disarmed them as we got them. But the ones that we didn't get, we couldn't get their weapons, obviously. And so they had stockpiles. And then we left a ton of it over there. And, and they just took that stuff, too. So the good guys have no access to weapons. The bad guys are the only ones that do. So that's the reason these guys can't fight back. If, if we had it pulled out in a, in a controlled fashion or set them up for success, knowing that this was going to happen, you know, anyone could have foreseen that then they would have been able to stand up and take their own country. They would have been able to defend it. Some of the regular army guys would have probably folded. The regular ANA guys probably would have folded immediately. These soft guys were very well trained and they would have stood up and fought for their country if they had the assets to do it. Is it over? Because one of my colleagues, Lara Logan, said something to me and maybe she tweeted it publicly that she'd been in touch with some of the people in Afghanistan. Early on, they hadn't given up they still were saying it's not over the Taliban. Why is America accepting that the Taliban are in charge now and dealing with them as though, Hey, they're the legitimate leaders or the de facto leaders. Is it over? Is this a done thing or are there still factions that can fight and might do something? Yeah, there's still factions that can fight and, and might do something. And that's the national resistance front that I was telling you about. Um, they've been weakened significantly but from what I've heard, they're fighting back and they're actually making a pretty good dent against the Taliban uh, where they're fighting at. And with with a little bit of assistance, they could definitely do good things. It, you know, even if we could assist the soft guys that we have in linking up with them and getting them getting their guns back to them. You know, what I mean, they could they could do some significant stuff. I mean, they were pushing them back. They were getting ready to take Kabul about a month and a half, maybe two months ago, right after we pulled out. They were close to taking Kabul back. And then Pakistan comes over and bombs them. I mean, there's not much you can do about that when you don't have your own air support. I mean, they're just running around the ground with guns trying to fight and they get bombed by airplanes from the enemy. So, yeah, it's possible they could take their own country back if, if they had a little assistance. You keep talking about Pakistan and what they're doing to influence this. Can you give us an idea of what's surrounding Afghanistan and why it's such an important place, like why other countries are involved and what other countries are involved in all of this. 
Well, you know, Pakistan has, has been harboring uh, terrorism for forever. They, they claim to be our allies and, you know, we supported them and all that kind of stuff. But there was tons and tons and tons of bad guys just right across the border and in Pakistan. And they would come across freely, attack us and go right back. And we couldn't do anything about it for the most part. Now, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, those are a little bit different up to the north. There's, uh, you know, kind of a Russian presence up that way. And they seem to be semi-cooperative. They've, you know, from the guys I've talked to on the ground, they've been helpful with guys uh, trying to get people out across, you know, certain areas up there. But for some reason, they are all locking everything down to try to keep all these refugees in. It's like they're they're all working against us, against getting anyone out of the country, like basically for the Taliban. Iran, you know, that's a whole entity of, of itself, you know, so, but there, there's an option for people to go out that way. But essentially all these countries that all the way are, are around Afghanistan are, are locking in this huge mountain chain that that's basically the Hindu Kush mountains coming off of, you know, where Mount Everest is essentially, but it's super rich in minerals. There's tons and tons of minerals there. And I think, you know, maybe that has something to do with this, but who knows? That's not my, my specialty tactical stuff, you know, combat stuff is, and then now rescue operations, but that's just the way I see it personally. So if people want to help with the rescue efforts or with what some teams like yours are doing, what's the best thing for them to do? They can reach out to us at blog.proexodusrelief.com. That's our main website. We've got a Twitter page there and they can link out, link up message um, our, uh, our lady who handled and volunteer for help if they want to physically help. And then we can talk to them and see where maybe they can fit in. Uh, but then we also have a donor site on, on there, one of our partners, Refugee Relief International. They could donate to there. And 100% of all of the money goes to funding EVAC efforts. So whether it be getting plane tickets for people, getting, on, getting them on flights, some of these chartered flights and stuff, or paying for safe houses, food, clothing, warm stuff for the wintertime. So it's all used. Not a single penny is going to any of the people on our team. We all do this 100% volunteer for free. The only thing that we pay for is our infrastructure, like our, our systems that we use in our email and stuff like that. But other than that, every penny of it goes to all the rescue efforts. So that's how they could help out if they want to help. Well, Mike Edwards, thank you so much for what you're doing. And thank you for what Project Exodus Relief is doing. We appreciate it. And we'll help get the word out along with others who've, who've done the same. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Cheryl. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To help or to learn more, you can visit blog.proexodusrelief.com. That's blog.proexodusrelief.com. Check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, wherever you like to listen. And I hope if you like the subject matter we talk about, you leave a great review and share these podcasts with your friends. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. All right, folks, all of you know the story about my crick in my neck and how I bought a MyPillow a few years ago, and all of a sudden, my neck just healed up. In fact, the orthopedist couldn't figure out what the heck had John done. I, it was simple. I just bought one of Mike Lindell's pillows, and I all of a sudden found I wasn't sleeping right on my pillow. Mike's pillows did the trick. Well, guess what? He's done it again. He's got something new. He's now introducing his new My Slippers. You want the best slipper ever the best foot experience late at night well mike has got he took over two years to develop this he designed it to wear this slipper indoor and outdoor all day long it's comfortable it's durable it's made with my pillow foam and impact gel 
to help prevent fatigue in the slipper. And it's made with quality leather suede. They look good. They feel good. They wear good. For a limited time now, Mike is offering 50% off his new My Slippers. You will also receive a free book with any purchase. The My Slippers are so comfortable that you'll want to get some for the whole family. It's a great gift, especially heading into springtime. So here, here's what you do. You go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's easy to remember, right? The promo code JUSTNEWS and you will get deep discounts on all the MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets the MyPillow mattress topper, and of course, the MyPillow towel set. And don't forget, y'all want those my slippers. You gotta have them, they're incredible. Here's another way you can take advantage of this. You can call 800-951-3715 and use the promo code Just News when someone picks up. Call 800-951-3715, use the promo code Just News. Pretty simple stuff for the best slipper sheet pillow experience of your life. Our heart is growing. Want to fly to Syracuse? Upstate has it all. Southwest is now selling nonstop service to Syracuse Hancock International Airport. With Southwest, you can enjoy low fares with two bags free and no change or cancel fees. Only at Southwest.com. Big heart, low fares. Book your Southwest flight today from Syracuse Hancock International Airport. Book now at Southwest.com. 